this is Adrian Griffin, and you're listening to Left Coast Pirate. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead, guarded by Ochefu, gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997. And we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this late night edition of Left Coast Pirates. It is February 13th, 2022. Mike, I don't know if I'm mentally available for this game. After watching the Super Bowl and after watching that spectacular halftime performance i i'm i don't know i think i'm in too good of a mood right now i hate you why 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 am i podcasting right after the super bowl i'm hung over <laughs> i'm tired it's been a long weekend you're yeah, already I hate you. hung over how fast <laughs> do you go through the drunk stages michael I, I had three beers i have no limit anymore man i'm done i'm an old man <laughs> Well, come on, man. Uh, Let me try to squeeze as much as I can get out of you. Let me pull you through the doors of success, kicking and screaming. Oh, geez. I'm not mad and I'm not angry today. And you you think I would be after losing a Nova yesterday. You know, I'm I'm obviously a little disappointed. Sure. You know, it's easy to be a prisoner of the moment after yesterday's loss on the road versus the Wildcats. But as a college basketball fan and more importantly, as I hard pirate fanatic Tom this week those were two high quality and enjoyable basketball games I mean were there moments where their play could have been better yes you know were there nail-biting moments of course you know were there moments where you got out of your seat and cheered absolutely but other than wanting to walk away with two wins what else could you really have asked for for this week You know, and on top of that, I personally got two moments that made it extra special for me. So we always talk about like the milestones of what we've accomplished with the podcast. But sometimes you have these smaller nuggets uh, that that just go a little deeper. And this is not about the accolades of how many people are listening or who we got to interview. You know, when you have your family buy into what you do, that makes it just a little extra special. So I'm sitting here watching the Xavier game on my couch. And previously, I'm, I was getting this mode of taking out a notepad and jotting down some in-game you know, action notes for the podcast. And my kids had kind of gotten used to that. But, but I hadn't done that on this evening. So I'm sitting down you know, in the man cave, nestled in to watch the game. And here's my daughter kind of creeping into the garage with her notepad. And she's standing right next to me and goes, Daddy, who's winning? Mind you, she's only six years old. I go, the Pirates are. Look look at the screen. And she starts jotting down notes. And she writes Seton Hall and the score. And then a big X and the score. And I look down at her, at her pad 
throughout the game. And she's just charting the score on her notepad. Like a, I'm such a proud papa at this moment. We're like my six-year-old daughter is getting into podcast notebook with me. And she's rooting along for the Pirates for victory. And then comes Saturday morning. And as you know, my, my son's been poisoned by my in-laws. They sent him Villanova gear, which is just disgusting and disgraceful. Yeah. And my son is now, you know, pro Wildcats. But my daughter whips out her Seton Hall cheerleader outfit and is sitting down next to me, rooting us on, trying to pull out the victory. I, I, I was I was in my glory there. That's, I just was. That's what you get, Mike, from marrying a girl from South Jersey. You know they're Philly folks, man. You know that they that's who they root for down there. So, you know, it's wonderful. I, I do have to say that is adorable. Your little girl is adorable. Thank God she looks like your wife. But, you know, my kids, I, I, get, I can feel you, Mike, because my kids come up to me as I'm watching these games, and they don't ask me who's winning anymore. I mean, you could look at the screen and figure out who's winning, but they, they have come to the point where they're asking me, Daddy, how are they playing? And whether they're winning or losing, they just want me to tell them how they're playing. And that's what gets them excited through the game. So why don't we get on with this? Let's see how long we can keep you from being mad. And this week on the podcast, we will review the win against Xavier and the loss at Villanova and preview the upcoming games against UConn and DePaul. But first... Seton Hall 73, Xavier 71. It was a tightly contested battle over the first eight minutes with the score tied 11-11. Then the Pirates kicked their game into gear and ignited a 21-7 run, leading to a 10-point halftime lead. At halftime, Travis Steele made some necessary adjustments as Xavier shot 61% in the second half, helping them close the gap to 41-40 before the Pirates answered with a 15-7 run of their own. The Musketeers hung tough, but a Miles Kale steal and coast-to-coast bucket pushed the lead back up to eight. Kevin Willard then decided to take the air out of the ball for the final two minutes, and it was just enough to hold on to a two-point victory as Xavier couldn't make the final plays to tie it up. Stats on this one. Jared Roden back in the box score leading the Pirates. 25 points, 8 of 18 from the floor, 5 of 8 from distance, and 8 rebounds to boot. Alexis Yetna, 12 crucial points and 5 rebounds. And Kadari Richmond once again doing a little bit of everything. Seven points, eight rebounds, and five assists. On the other side for Xavier, it was Jack Nunji. See, I got, I got it right this time, Tom, right? 22 points, 9 to 12 from the floor. Felt like he couldn't be stopped. Neither could Paul Scruggs. 21 points, seven rebounds, and seven assists. The two made for a lethal dynamic duo in the second half. Team shooting. Couldn't believe it. Xavier finished 51% from the floor in this one. And Seton Hall, 40%. Free throws, Xavier 19 to 25. And the Hall almost opened the door, shooting 14 to 23. But the Pirates held a huge rebounding advantage, 41 to 28, specifically a 15 to 3 on the offensive glass. And this game was hotly contested. In the half court, Tom, each team was only able to register two points in fast break transition buckets. But 
clearly, I thought the turning point in this game was the Zach Fremantle double foul with Trey Jackson and then the flagrant foul for stepping over and taunting, which ultimately led to his fourth and fifth foul in that sequence, ejecting him from the game. It sparked the Pirates on a 12 to 5 run and allowed them to boost the lead back up to 10 points. Xavier had drawn close at one point. They were within one at 41-40. Then Harris had the bucket. Then you had the controversial play. And on top of that, Fremantle was super hot to start the second half. You know, he was attacking the basket. He was hitting little jumpers. He was kind of finding his stroke. And the way that Nunji and uh, Scruggs were playing, if you would have added a, you know, effective Zach Fremantle to the mix, I don't know if the Hall could have held them at bay. So having Fremantle leave the court all discombobulated or just kind of out of sorts, I think that kind of threw Xavier off their game before they made that late charge to try to steal it in the end. I don't know how super hot Zach Fremantle was, Mike. He finished the game with four points. He put two baskets in okay. But I'm going to steal a little thunder for you. I know you're going to come up with the social media post of the week. But the best thing I saw all week was at JP Carlissimo on Twitter after that flagrant foul said, Zach Fremantle looks like he wants to be a tough guy at the worst way. And man, did that show. But this game was truly a kind of tale of two halves, Mike, because the first half, the Seton Hall offense looked fantastic. They moved the ball around. They took that normal intensity that they bring to the defensive side and they brought it in on the offense, man. It really looked nice. They moved that ball around. I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to say that the reason why the offense looked good is because this team plays and builds off of their defense. We asked for the intensity level to be picked up just like we saw in the Creighton game. Hey, we got that same effort again. And when they come out with that kind of effort, it makes a huge impact specifically on the defensive side of the floor. They held Xavier to 39% shooting in the first half. I mean, we said it in your recap, they shot 60 plus 60 in the second half for a 51% average for the game. But in addition to holding them to 39% shooting, they also forced 10 turnovers and those turnovers led to 13 points offensively. We need to build offense off of our defense. And that was definitely the case in the first half. And as you said, conversely, it was a tale of two halves. They did not force another turnover or better yet. Maybe Xavier didn't turn the ball over the entire second half. Those are the only 10 turnovers for the game for the Musketeers. So when our defense is clicking, I think it builds the confidence on the offensive side. It gets us some easy buckets. I wouldn't say that our offense was clicking because in the second half, it clearly wasn't. You think these things are mutually exclusive. In the first half, the guys were making the extra pass. They were moving that ball around. And in the second half, like you said, they went back to that ISO ball. But who came up big offensively? Jared Ronan, and he did it in a most unconventional way for himself. He shot the ball from deep very well. Perfect illustration of where you're sitting here going, hey, it was first half, second half. No, I went back to kind of see how Jared got his points because we made a comment in the previous podcast about Jared needing to let the game come to him, right? We, we gave that Trayvon Blewett example of play within the flow and don't force your shot. I went back and looked to see how many times he took a shot that was in the flow of the offense where somebody else 
them up or the game came to him versus him going one-on-one ISO. And I thought it was really eye-popping because it had nothing to do with first or second half. It was completely just isolation buckets throughout or being set up by his teammates throughout. He shot six of 10 on plays that he was set up by his teammates. And he shot two of eight, one turnover on plays that he went ISO. I'm sorry, Tom. He's got to trust his teammates to get him the quality shots. He's clearly not an effective ISO ball player. But in this game, for the for the 10 shots that he took, he was able to carry the team because of that effort. What, and, what and are Jared you sorry clearly, about? I don't disagree with those comments, Mike. Right. There was two in particular plays where Jack Nungy, that's how you pronounce it, Mike, just making sure you remember, was, was isolated on... Uh, Jared Roden and Jared's b- waving off everybody else. He's taking Jack Nungy. He's going to show him how to play. And he takes two step back 19 foot jumpers, which we always bemoan are the worst shots in basketball you can take outside of them just being long, only two point shots. You're also going away from the basket at that point, Mike. It's just you've got the slow footed guy on you. Why are you not blowing by him? It's, don't wave people off if you're not going to blow by him. What well, also happened towards the end of the game, right? He got bailed out by getting hit on the elbow and getting two free throws. But, you know, he didn't go all the way to the basket. He pulled up. You know, it was definitely more of his sweet spot. But late in the shot clock and the Xavier defender, I think it was Colby Jones, kind of hit him on the elbow and he earned two free throws in which he made one of two. But if he doesn't get a bucket there, you know, Xavier has a chance to take the lead. So I, yeah, great game by Jared, but I want to see more of the in the flow of the offense where he generated most of his scoring attempts and was most efficient from the three point range. Speaking of guys who are, who are kind of coming into their own and understanding the game flow, I thought Kadari Richmond played a really solid game as a floor general here. Kevin Willard didn't overextend him and only played him 33 minutes tonight. And he had five assists and four turnovers. But I also went back because I felt like Kadari had a bigger impact on this game. There were six different opportunities that he could have had assists. I mean, if you remember, you know, Roden has that reverse layup. Jackson has that nice backdoor cut on like the first play of the game. Yetna has a couple open threes. None of those shots go down. You know, he tries to set up Ike for an alley-oop. That had no chance, but it was still a nice play. Once again, if he, he makes those, if we convert on those opportunities, Seton Hall maybe runs away with this one, and you're looking down at the box score going, wow, Richmond had 10 assists, 9 assists. Wow, he's coming into his own. He, he's making the adjustments. He's blossoming into that point guard. I thought he played a really good game, and I don't think the box score reflected it the way it should have. I think he's played a good game. I don't, I'm don't. i not going to give him the credit for quote-unquote blossoming into a point guard because technically he was supposed to be the starting point guard from go, Mike. So don't give me this. He showed you something in the preseason workouts that he was going to be that point guard. So, you know, play up to your ability here, kid. You know, At what point do we stop listening to these summer hype stories and just accept the player for who they are when they take the court for the first time and make an evaluation with our own eyes. I the don't know, could, Mike. When are you going to stop listening to It's, it's fun. I'm, I'm going to have to learn. But it's fun to get hyped up to get into the season. But the minute Kadari took the court early on this year, we even scratched our head and go, is that the same guy that they were talking about? Now, he's shown flashes. He's got the talent. But this wasn't like we realized this 11 games into the season. We were like, okay, there needs to be some development. I like the third game of the season we saw it in the Michigan performance 
when all of a sudden Aiken came in and played significant minutes and carried the team down the stretch. And you saw a changing of the guard that point on. Now, Kadari's had a decent season, in my opinion, and he stepped up and had some big moments. But this expectation, I think we need to throw it out the window. Anything we hear going forward, we got to evaluate these kids for what they do on the court, not what we're reading in press clippings from summer workouts. Since we're being grumpy, let's move right into sour grapes and gripes, but let's take this in a little different manner. I mean, we won this game. Yes, we can talk about the slowing down of the offense in the second half. Maybe the intensity and the defense wasn't as good. We can point out the pick and roll offense against Jack Nunji was crap. But, you know, let's have a little fun with this, Mike. Travis Steele, coach of Xavier, got caught with a huge expletive during some moment of silence for cancer victims during the game, Mike. I think it's a non-story. I mean, it kind of sucks. It's kind of embarrassing. But I thought he handled it properly in the postgame. I mean, you never want to be dropping F-bombs on the sideline, period. When, you know, when the whole entire audience is going to be able to hear it, you don't want to represent yourself that way. But, you know, he comes back out, immediately apologizes to open his press uh, press conference in the postgame, says he was not aware that at that moment in the game, that's when Seton Hall PR was going to execute this moment of silence for the stand up for cancer victims. And they're in a heated battle. You know, this is a big, important game for Xavier and Seton Hall to continue to build their resume, win a Big E's road game. They're in the thick of it. And you know what? He probably needed to have better awareness of what was going on, but he lost focus. He's coaching his team. He's trying to get them fired up. And he dropped an F-bomb and he apologized. So I don't understand why it's being made out to be more than it is beyond that in itself. Absolutely. It was poor timing, in my opinion. You should have done this pregame right before the announcement of the starting lineups so everybody has their moment and it doesn't interfere with the game. And you have no possibility of something like this happening. I mean, in the middle of the game, the last thing you want to do is take these guys out of their chosen profession, if you will, and have them pay attention to something that's got nothing to do with the game itself. Well, it's the same thing with the in the huddle moment. You think any of those guys, they're always looking over their shoulder to be like, when's the camera going to be shut off? Oh, oh absolutely. Right? You know? I can't stand the interviews going into halftime or coming out of halftime. Leave the coaches alone. Talk to them before the game. Talk to them after the game. Don't mess with the integrity of the game during it. Now, normally I don't like to complain about the refs, but I'm also putting the refs in the category of things that I can't stand as we're talking about sour grapes and gripes here. Now, I think they got the Fremantle situation right. I know that took a lot of time for them to sort out, but that was warranted. They were making a decision about whether they're going to give this guy a flagrant two would then translate to his fifth foul and essentially, you know, kick him out of the game. So I, I thought they handled that correctly and took the extra time to make the right decision. However, the two missed traveling calls on Jack Nunji, and they were blatantly obvious. Ike's goaltending was horrendous. And then you have this like this inbound save by Colby Jones of Xavier, where he just kind of flings it over his shoulder and saves it in play. And all of a sudden, then they stop the game to say that that's he, he's maintained possession. Since when do you go diving out of bounds and just fling the ball back into play? And that's now creating possession that the, the shot clock needed to be reset back to 20 for Seton Hall. And even if that's the call, make the call. We got to go to the cameras. We got to waste five minutes. And then on top of that, I thought Xavier probably got the, the short end of the stick. I think that last ball was probably out on. No, no and then they went I, to replay it. 
I mean, I, I don't know what they look at when they go to these replays. I don't agree with that at all. If anything, it was inconclusive. But I think you missed one on that save inbounds by Colby Jones. Uh, Tyrese actually goes skying for that ball, grabs the ball. He travels on it as he comes down, Mike. He did. He so, did. Yes, he they, did. There, there were a bunch of missed calls by the ref. It was, it was painful to watch. Uh, you know, it, yeah, it wasn't a good show. And the entire season's been a bad showing by the refs. I don't know if we're more focused on it or because the replays have become so much more advanced that we could see every miss. But it's been it's not a been a good showing by the refs in the least bit this year. Yeah, I'm, I'm not complaining saying one team was slighted versus the other. or That was the reason that the certain outcome of the game, you know, tilted in a certain direction. That's, that's not where I'm going with this. It's just. It's bad refereeing in general. It's impacting the flow of the game. Uh, Which game was it when we basically had like a 13-minute break? I I forgot. Was it the Texas game? Oh, my God. Come on. Just It's becoming about the refs and almost like a look-at-me moment. And then you have all these look-at-me moments, and you can't make the obvious goaltending or travel calls that to the average fan or the the trained eye of the, the common basketball fan we're like, oh my, how did you miss that? So we're seeing more of, more of that, the missed basic call, and then the slowing down of games to go to these monitors, and then still coming back with inconclusive decisions. It's just bad for the game. So boo on the refs. I don't think it had an impact on the final outcome, but they got to get better. And we've said this before, the Big East needs to look into this to try to hold them accountable to get better because we're going to have some big games down the stretch, and you have a result like the end of the Marquette game that going back, you know, you're going to sit there and go, I wish we would have had that game. And you hope that that doesn't happen again in another crucial game that's going to be important to the resume. It wasn't even TV Teddy Valentine on the whistle. It was amazing. No, it wasn't even James Breeding either. It's uh, <laughs> But that Clowardy guy, he was around. But as bad <laughs> as the refing was and, and as it slowed down the, against Xavier, we had a barn burner on Saturday. Villanova 73 Seton Hall 67. Seton Hall had their shooting shoes on from the start, draining eight three-pointers in the first half. But Nova was able to maintain contact, trailing the Pirates 32-29 at the break. The second half featured four ties, seven lean changes, as well as a 9-0 Nova run answered by an 11-0 run by the Hall. But with the game tied at 67, the Wildcats made key plays and clutch free throws to pull the victory out in the final 90 seconds of action. All right, Tom, box score on this one. Kadari Richmond, 16 points, five assists. Trey Jackson, 16 points, four of six from three-point range. And Alexis Yetna with 15 rebounds. For Nova, all five starters were in double figures. You had Jermaine Samuels with 16 points on 7-11 from the floor. Please just graduate already. (laughs) Justin Moore, 16 points, 7 rebounds. Gillespie, Dixon, Slater all had 10 each. Shooting-wise, on the team stats, the Hall was at 42%. Nova was at 41. They're not a traditional shoot-the-lights-out Nova game. We had them, Tom. Three-point shooting. Seton Hall, 11-26. For 42%, Nova, 8 of 26 for only 31%. Free throw shooting, we made the ones that we got, 8 of 9, but Nova didn't give you any window of opportunity. 
15 out of 16. The turning point to me, I mean, it comes at the end of the game, all right? It was great game back and forth, but Slater stumbles as he's attacking the basket, tosses the ball out to the three-point line, and there it is right in front of him, a 50-50 ball between Jameer Harris and Colin Gillespie, and Gillespie wins the ball and immediately tacks the basket and makes a pass to Slater. As you said to me, somehow gets back on his feet into perfect position to receive that pass and put the go-ahead bucket in for two. And then Nova didn't trail again. And they made all the clutch plays, and they made all the smart plays, and they made their free throws, and that's your ball game. I think that's hugely underrated that Slater got himself up and back into position to make that play. That, that's pretty impressive. So, Mike, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit. You know, I'm on tape delay for that game because I'm at rec basketball for the kids. But I've got not only you texting me updates, I've got the text chain going on. I've got GameCast going, so I know what's going on. So by the time I get to the basketball game, I've already got preconceived notions of what at least seven, eight different people have got to say about this game. And there was a whole lot of complaining about how the game was called. So I get into this game, and I'm really focused in on that, Mike. But I can't tell you that's what caused it. This was just a fun, competitive basketball game from whistle to whistle. I don't know how you do it. I don't you tell me how it's a fun basketball. Already know what the result is. I'm sorry. You got to go. You got to go blackout dark. I, I got a realtor phone call Mike, in the middle of this game. Real technology out there. You don't have to go blackout dark, Mike. That's did you, not did you how watch the, the game? Works. Did you did you watch the game or not? Or did you get I text did message watch updates? The game. I got my updates. I went back and watched. That's it. not it the same. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not gonna. You can never Stop convince it, me. Mike. It's that, that 2022. Get, wake up. Watching the game cast as the as ESPN updates the score as uh, the play by play mug. That was the fun part when I got back and watched it, Mike. Listening is a skill, Mike. I, I, and that's what I'm saying. I'm saying I don't know how, after you already know the result, how it could be as exhilarating and exciting as it was watching this game in the moment. We're on pins and needles. I'm biting my fingernails. I'm jumping off the my couch when Trey Jackson hits those three pointers. I'm getting disgruntled when Nova goes on their run. I'm pumping my chest when Harris bangs in that three and they go, go on that 11 0 run. It was just a fun basketball game. I got sucked into the whole recap text message update during the UConn game. And I was so disappointed because going back and watching it on replay, not the same. I'm sorry. Oh, you would have enjoyed the 1950s, Mike. I'm telling you, you would have loved it. Oh, geez. It, it was it was good basketball. It really was. And unfortunate that we lost. And it's unfortunate that once again, it, it comes at the hands of Nova in Philadelphia and, and the beat goes on, but it was still a good basketball game. So from a blue tinted glasses perspective, at least I'm happy that the pirates are playing better basketball overall. Yeah. There's, there's moments of this game that we could nitpick and, and we probably will, but it's a better brand of basketball than what we saw in the Marquette and St. John's game just a couple of weeks ago. Speaking of guys that are picking up their game again, we had a little lull by Yetna for a couple of games. All of a sudden, he went silent and was not putting up the, the big rebounding that all of a sudden we were growing accustomed to. We'd even said that we had taken it for granted. And all of a sudden, he had a couple quiet games, but he's back. And he's back with a vengeance. I mean, he was a beast on the boards. And not only did he come in and clean up the glass, he was the adjustment defensively to slow down 
Eric Dixon because Dixon was just making Ike look silly. It just was not a good matchup for Ike. Ike is really good when he's coming over on weak side help for most of his blocks. But if you notice when Ike has another guy one-on-one in the post and that guy has, you know, uh, polished moves, Ike will get caught out of position. He'll go for a head and easily get taken out of his rhythm. And this game, Dixon was making his impact as Nova was starting their comeback. And then all of a sudden in the second half, you see Yetna get the assignment. You see Tyrese get the assignment and he put more two athletic forwards on Dixon and they started doubling. They started walling up and they changed the tempo of this game underneath because Nova was owning the hall in the paint. Ike doesn't play well against bangers, Mike, but Ike tends to play well against those big kids that are a little maybe softer, if you will, like the kid from Michigan. The kid from Michigan's not putting his butt into you and banging against you. The kid at Creighton is the same way. They're more finesse, more skilled players where Dixon, he's big lower body. He can move you down at the block. And that almost works into Yetna's strength set. I mean, Yetna's a big, bulky kid. He likes that banging down there. And he does better at it than Ike does. So, yeah, you're not wrong with that. But I can't believe you're not going to bring up the 16 points in 18 minutes that Trey Jackson put up. How's he only getting 18 minutes in this game when he's the offensive standout? I... I Trey gets it in waves, right? So, and then people then sit there and criticize his defense at the four, or maybe he's undersized at the four because he only grabbed one rebound. And, you know, we're at a competitive disadvantage on that side of the floor. I think when he can be that dynamic offensively, you got to find a way to either protect him on defense or you have to live with the fact that he might give up a couple buckets when he can get you 16. I mean, if he would have gotten 30 something minutes for as well as he's shooting, could he have given you 25? Was this a game that Trey could have given you 25? I mean, we're going to talk about it in Sour Grapes and Grapes, but I'd like to see Trey get some more time potentially at the three. But you're making me jump the gun here. Are you just, well, why are you doing that to me? And you want to talk about something the one that doesn't want to give anybody outside of your favorites any credit around here. You want, you want suppo- credit? You want I'm credit? surprised you didn't bring any other of your favorites in here, Mike. Here's, here's credit. Last year, if I say Brandon Slater and Eric Dixon, you would have been like, what? They look like world beaters now. That's player development. Those two guys are jumping off the page for Nova. And you were like, where were these two guys last year? And they look like winners for the front court for for Nova at this point. Right? To me, that's player development. All right, Mike, we're already grumpy, so let's talk. What what else made you feel upset in this game? I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm not mad. I'm not upset. I mean, I'm, I'm this is my opportunity to go right to the social media uh, post of the week. I'm going to go back to rivals. I'm going to go this week with Hall 91. And I think he summed it up pretty well. You go, or maybe it's a she. I don't know. My apologies. Uh, Nova doesn't beat themselves. To beat them, you need to do all the little things as good, if not better than them. Box out, make free throws, limit turnovers. Unfortunately, Nova beat us in those areas today. And that was the difference. And And this person is spot on. Nova historically and consistently is just a cut above us. You know, and, and this is not a vintage Nova team. I'm sorry. It's a good team, but this is not a, maybe it could be a final four team, but they do not look like a final four team in terms of their depth. They're not lights out shooting the three point shot. Like they've done before, you know, Gillespie is up more had his ankle. They were ripe for the take. 
the numbers speak for themselves in this we get way too into the numbers, but look at the turnovers. Seton Hall 13, Nova 7. 13's not egregious, but it's six more than they gave up. And it led to 22 points for Nova off those turnovers and only eight for us. On the road, it is really hard to overcome that 14-point differential in that category. Fouls, I'm not complaining about the refs. Seton Hall had 16 fouls. Nova had nine. Nine for the entire game. Jumping for their head fakes a decade later. And they play rock-solid defense minus the weak flopping that they tried to pull at the bidding of the game. So I give the refs credit because they didn't buy any of that weak-ass flopping early in the game. And, and Nova did it like three or four times and advantage and got buckets off of that. But overall, they are on their one-on-one defensive assignments. They rotate over. They close out. We don't. Well, you know, you're not right? wrong, Mike. Hall 91, certainly not wrong. And Seton Hall did not take advantage of the situation. I mean, like you mentioned, we went, we hit eight three-pointers in the first half. I think it was something like eight for 14 from three. We held Nova scoreless for nearly the last five minutes of the first half and practically the first minute of the second half, Mike. And it was still a five-point game at 19-11 in the second half. We didn't take advantage of it because we were too busy kicking a ball off our foot, turning the ball over against a team that doesn't jump passing lanes, that doesn't play anything but kind of steady, solid, I'm in front of you defense. And we just kept turning it over. You cannot go... 8 of 14, and I want to say, shame on me for not having the exact numbers. I think Nova hit two threes in the first half. You've got that kind of disparity in that first half, and you're only up three at halftime. You're not beating Nova like that in Philadelphia. Because they turned it over nine times in the first half, and Nova only turned it over three times. And then Nova was not shooting the ball well from three-point range. And if I'm not mistaken, they had like a... 16 to four advantage in the paint. This team knows when one thing is not working well, what else they have to do to Jay Wright does a great job of finding the one-on-one mismatch and going ISO in the post. That's their bread and butter. Every year they find out what that mismatch is and they go ahead and exploit it. And it was none different in the, this game. Yeah. And this isn't, this is kind of not something that we've seen for the first time. This goes back to the Marquette game at Marquette. They held them at one point in that game, like one of 15, one of 15. And we took a five point deficit and built a four point lead. I mean, that was over like a stretch of 10 minutes. How do you, how do you only flip the score by nine points? Sometimes our ops also goes into the same lull at the same time as the opposition. I think when Nova was going through their drought, I, I, I think it was uh, Gus Johnson saying that Seton Hall had not had a field goal made for almost three and a half minutes, almost four minutes on a possession that was towards the end of the half. And I think Kadari got his three free throws then. So I don't even know if Seton Hall had a field goal for the last four minutes of the first half outside of those free throw attempts. Well, hey, look. and you, you talk about lulls. You know who went right back into a lull for this game? The hero of the Xavier game, Jared Roden, scores eight points for the game, 4-12, basically going back to pretty much all ISO. His last basket of the game, Mike, 
13 minutes and 26 seconds left in the second half. That's it. He was done. A couple things here. I would have loved to seen Trey get more minutes at the three. I've said this, becoming a broken record. Samuel is playing well. I don't think Samuel is playing great, but Samuel is playing good defense on Dixon. It allowed Yetna to kind of roam around and grab the boards. Yetna was also able to come over and double down and help. So it was good to have him on the floor at the 4-5. And Willard is so stubborn that he will not play anybody else outside of those combinations that we talked about. It's either Yetna or Jackson at the 4, or it's Ike, or it's Tyrese at the 5. Great opportunity to get Trey back in the game, give Jared a breather, and run with those three guys in the front court. And guess what? Maybe Trey Jackson on uh, Jermaine Samuels wouldn't have been such a big mismatch. Similar height. You know, he can play him out on the perimeter. Everyone's like, oh, Trey can't play D on the perimeter. How would we know? He's never played the three the whole year. He's never guarded anybody in that capacity. What, you've evaluated him on like one switch? Not okay. Jared needs to be fresher down the stretch. Jared sometimes needs to have his, his head cleared. And, and take a breather and see the game from a different perspective. Maybe that's sitting next to one of the coaches on the bench and, and getting some pointers or, or like I said, seeing what else is going on, but you need your best players to step up on the road against the best competition. If you're going to win those types of games and Jared did not deliver, he just did on this one. It's speaking of the, the substitution pattern with Jared Roden and him only getting two minutes you know, on the bench and, and not getting as much time for Trey. I thought there could have been another strategic substitution towards the end of the game. And here I'm going to, I'm going to eat crow here because I'm not, I'm not even going to eat crow. Miles had a good game, right? The, we know that we're going to get good miles and sometimes we get bad miles. This was a good miles game. Miles comes out and he's bad pointers. He's four nine from the floor. We know that he brings a competitive advantage for us on the defensive side of the ball. And Harris got lost on the three-pointer made by Justin Moore when we went, went kind of quasi-zone. And then he also got out-hustled by Gillespie for that loose ball that ultimately uh, turned the game for the Wildcats. Kale not in at the two. It's not like Harris was running the point. You had Kadari in the game. Harris was two of six from three-point range. Those are the only six shots he took for the game. He's not a lockdown defender. Why is Miles Kale not in? covering more and Gillespie in those situations. He's going to get you that tough rebound. He's lengthy. He would have kind of been able to kind of close out on more better. Probably would have known his defensive assignment better than Harris. Just from my, his experience. What am I missing? Why was kill not a game? I, I just can't believe my ears here, Mikey. You're actually wondering why miles kale wasn't in the game. This is a highlight. I'm going to have to star this moment in the history of a podcast here, you're actually defending Miles. Yeah, I don't get it. I also don't get why you don't keep going to him until he shows he's not shooting well. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of things we can question. We could talk about the last minute 30, about the offensive execution down the end. You need a two. Kadari shoots a three. You also come down the next time and you have Kadari ISO. It's like we had no plan. It, it's here, go get me a basket. Here, best ball player, get me a basket, get out of the way. You know, it, it, it's it, we can continue with this. 
So so we're basically saying, hey, once again, we might have gotten out coached in this scenario. Well, well whether we're out coached or not, we've had these conversations with former players. Kevin Willard loves to give the ball to his best player and say, go do something for me. And it doesn't work this year if that player doesn't happen to be Bryce Aiken. We've shown that. We've seen plays happen. We've seen nice little end-of-the-half plays for Trey Jackson. We've seen little plays run for Jameer Harris once or twice maybe. How are you not running something at the end of this game? So so if, if I'm hearing you correctly, there's a little bit of uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? A little bit of – criticism of coach's ability to rise to the occasion. But Tim Brando and Gus Johnson were putting Kevin on a completely different pedestal to start both of these games. So in the beginning of the Xavier game, here's Brando saying Kevin Willard is becoming a star in this business. And then to lead off the Villanova game, Gus Johnson goes, he is a hot coaching prospect right now with some of those vacancies, especially Maryland and Louisville. What am I missing? I mean, is where does Kevin rank in your opinion of top coaches in the NCAA? Is he a is he a top twenty type coach? Top, I, I'm like, not getting. No, no, this is not the time or place. So, so what makes you a star then? So, so what makes you a star in this business though? Yeah, what, I don't what, know, what? Mike. I mean, you know, Gus hasn't been on the mic for a long time for us, so maybe Gus hasn't seen a few things lately. I don't know. Maryland and Louisville fancy themselves as Final Four slash national title contenders year in, year out. Kevin Willard has not shown he can get them to that level, so I don't think he's a candidate for either of those positions. There are other positions I think will come knocking at Kevin Willard's door. I think they're going to say, look at what he's done with what he has at Seton Hall. Let's make him a deal here. But those two positions, no, no. I mean, what what are you going to tell me next? That, you know, Coach K is retiring and and, and Kevin Willard's a potential candidate there? I mean, stop it. I'm just saying like it when I have narratives, but these announcers come onto the broadcast and they are clearly being fed narratives by Fox one or Fox in general to kind of pump up the coaches. But you even said Gus probably hasn't watched one of our games in a while because he started off calling Jared Roden, Jared Rhodes. And I think uh, you know, uh, Donnie kind of jumped in and goes, yes, Roden's having a great season, but almost to kind of like let Gus go. You got that one wrong. Feed off of me here, Gus. Because he didn't get it wrong the rest of the game. I'm going to give Gus a pass for... No, no, that was not Mushmouth. That was not Mush... You sure? Rhodes. Okay. He called him Jared Rhodes. You know, I mean, the guys have a tough time with names sometimes. You know, I mean, you know, Mamu Kelish... Mamu Kelish... Mamu Kelish... It's not that hard. It's not that hard. I don't know, man. We went 25 years of Arturus Karnishevus until we found out everybody's been saying his name wrong. But, you know, not only do we give the announcers a bit of grief, but we also love to give dear old coach grief by going to our favorite segment of the show. And now, Deep Thoughts with Kevin Willard. So, unfortunately, Mike, there was no multimedia available at the time of this recording of anything post-game. 
not a post-game presser. He didn't show up on Gary and Dave's show. So I have nothing on the post-game of Nova from Kevin Willard. So oh, you're just grumpy. See, now you're grumpy. There was there was Xavier post game tape out there. He he was pretty good in That's the Xavier post game. Story right now, Mike. So <laughs> there was a question that was put to Kevin, and he was asked about the rivalry with Villanova being the best in the Big East, and this is what he said. Yeah, I think it is. If you just watch. Look over the last seven years. The games we've had against each other have always been, it's been a battle. I've talked about how much respect I have for Gillespie and Samuels and what they've done for this league. So it's definitely a battle every time we play each other. I guess Jay and I have been in this league a long time. I know what Jay's going to do. Jay knows what I'm going to do. I think that's one reason us... Providence with Eddie, we just know each other so well. And so to prepare your team to play against someone you know inside and out, I mean, I know Jay's plays better than Jay does. We go into the games and we know what we have to do. And I think that's what makes this league unique is the fact that we've had guys in the league for so long. He knows Jay's plays better than he does. Hey, Kevin, uh, just a reminder, this this great rivalry that you have right now, they've won the last five, and they've won 12 out of the last 14. Now, has entertaining basketball? Totally. Have there been some classic games? Yes. But I'm sorry, when a team wins 12 out of 14, to me, that's not a rivalry. We brought up Joe Giuliano. We were interviewing him a couple of years back, talking about you know Seton Hall going into – Philadelphia and trying to end the streak with that special miles Hall team. And we're like, Joe, what do you think? Rivalry? You know, are you Seton Hall going to end the streak? And he's like, what streak? Because when you <laughs> beat up on the other guy, when you're the redheaded stepchild, when you're the little brother, it's not a rival. Could there be respect? Sure. I think the Nova fans respect that we give them a, a run for their money, but I don't think we are the best rivalry in the sport because you actually have to, like you say all the time, Tom, you have to win. Both sides need to be. We went back with Caver and we talked about Seton Hall, Syracuse and St. John's back in the early 90s. And they were throwing haymakers left and right at each other and each team knocking the other off. It's not happening. Just not happening. No, no. So- and, and nail and a hammer aren't rivals here, Mike. And, you know, our friend from the Wall Street Journal, Brian Fitzgerald, perfectly encapsulates the, the feeling. It says, another close, hard-fought loss to Nova in what feels like a lifetime of them. And when you lose year in, year out, all the time, we've only got one real like significant victory against Villanova in what 30 years, Michael? And that's no, the no, see, that's no, no, that's the 2016 Big East tournament game. We won one game in Philadelphia, not relevant in the big picture, Mike. Relevant to us, you not also relevant in you the all, big you picture. also knocked off Nova to end the season the year prior with the NZ Powell Kale. Sandro 
to punch their ticket for the dance. You're, you forget your miracle at the Rock Week. Hey, Mike, who won the who won the Big East that year? Did we win the Big East? That I, I understand, but we'll see the Hall fans look at it differently when they. And what did we finish signature. that year as, Mike? A, a robust we finished third, nine as always. We finished third. We finished we, third. We, we finished a robust nine and nine, Michael. Stop it. Just telling you that our fans look at it differently. They they really hang on to those exclusive moments where we win and we beat them and they put significance behind. You know, we go back to the freshman when Whitehead was out. Relevance, Mike. So, so to our fans, those four wins were really, really important relative to what was happening in those seasons. And they happen to be against Nova. So they hold on to them with just a little extra vigor. But to me, you're right. It's good basketball. It's entertaining but it's not relevant to a rivalry. I, I, I just don't see it that way. I don't think anybody right now is really a rival to Villanova with how much they've dominated Big East relative to when they realigned, when they broke away uh, from all those football schools. Nova has been on a level of their own. Uh, and I think UConn's going to bring some nastiness back to the Big East in terms of hatred, Tom. I know you like some hate. I think UConn's going to bring that hate and you're going to see some rivalries develop. You're going to see that Connecticut-Boston-type rivalry with Providence. I think you're going to see Seton Hall, if they can stay relevant, uh, battle UConn. And I think UConn's going to create that rivalry from a national brand name perspective that the Big East is going to promote. But right now, Villanova is the flagship of the conference, and everybody else is battling for number two. You know, you, just, talk, you talk about what Seton Hall fans see, but Mike, you know what they didn't see? They didn't see a whole lot of the Xavier game, Mike, because the crowd was sparse, and then a bunch of them were leaving early in the game, and I just had to say, whoa, did you see that? <laughs> that was good. There's your, there's your transition moment thank of you, the podcast. I, I try there sometimes, you go. Mike. Tip, tip your cap, take a bow. Uh, <laughs> it was a weeknight, right? So we can give them a pass. There was supposed to be some kind of ice storm. I know it didn't come to fruition, but you know, if you got to travel long distances or you're worried about your safety, Sometimes you got to kind of, you know, do what's do what makes more sense and stay home and be safe. And but the fans that showed up, they cheer. You, you still felt it in the moments of that game when Seton Hall was making a run. You felt the crowd. But what I don't understand is why the crowds leave with under two minutes to go. Was was that game in doubt? I thought yes, it was still that, in doubt. That right? game was truly in doubt. Even after Miles Kale stole that pass and put it down, and we had an eight point lead. It still did not feel like that game was over. I felt good. I felt good, but I didn't feel like it was over. And now you got two minutes to go. You know, they projected it or the final attendance that was reported was like under 9,000. And people were saying, eh, it was probably closer to five or six. I've been to the Rock before. Is it really hard to get out of the Rock when there's only five to 6,000 people? What kind of traffic are you beating in the last 90 seconds there? What am I missing? Look, people were sitting there going, but I have my kid. And, okay, if, if you got a little one, and you got to beat the traffic no matter what time of the game you choose to leave. I get that. But if you're an adult and you came in with another adult or you came with an elderly adult and you didn't you didn't commit to stay for the entire game. Why not? What 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 do Seton Hall fans want? Top 25 matchup season kind of on the line or in the balance have to have this win. You've gutted out 38 minutes supporting your team and now you decide to leave. I just don't get it. You know, I think Seton Hall fans go to these games and they have the stopwatch sitting there and they've got a timer going and that when that timer hits, they're ready to bolt. You know, do you, I mean, you know what that timer sounds like, right, Mike? It sounds like tick, 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 tick. And speaking of timers, Mike, 
Two minutes on the clock. Oh, Talk geez. to me about the resume. Okay, Res- resume picked up, if you ask me, regardless of the loss to Villanova. Michigan actually thrashed Purdue this week, and they jumped their net back into the 30s. Texas, UConn, Xavier all remain now top 20 in the net. Now you have four really solid wins that sit there on your resume. That's a lot better than most of the teams in the country. And as much as it pains me, Tom, Rutgers is creeping into position to become a quad two win as they've now raised their net to an 81 after their third consecutive victory versus an AP top 25 opponent after they knocked off Wisconsin on the road this weekend. Despite the Hall's resume being below 500 in conference play, to me, it's really solid. But at this part of the season, I love to follow everything else that's going on in the country and follow all the bracketology. But there's too many out there, if you ask me. If there's one site that you should go to, go to bracketmatrix.com. And currently, Seton Hall sits as like an eight seed based on all the brackets that are produced out there. That's a pretty solid position. But I'll go even one further. And you can, now you're going to think I'm nuts. You're probably going to want to cut me off at this point. But I think it's relevant. To me, it's fun to now watch for the next days all the other college basketball that's out there across the country and root for those other bubble teams to lose. And for Seton Hall, it was a solid week. Utah State loses at home to Nevada, net 132. San Francisco loses at home to Portland, net 202. Davidson lost to URI, net 120. Oregon loses to Cal, net 134. And Washington State loses at home to ASU, a net 135. And on top of that, everybody else essentially missed resume building opportunities with chances to knock off top rated teams. So as much as we're frustrated that we're six and seven in the big East and we didn't get that marquee road win against Villanova, I don't think Seton hall damaged their by their one and one result this week. And I know you wanted better than that. We all wanted better than that. We thought one and one was realistic. That's what we got. And it's a positive result at the end of the day. What I wanted, Mike, was one less minute because you're overtime. And the best way to improve our chances of getting into the tournament and getting a good seed is this coming week taking care of business with UConn and DePaul on the schedule. We've played both of these teams, but let's talk about what they've looked like since we've played them. Since UConn lost the Pirates, they're 7-3 and three in Big East play. Eight and five overall. Outside of beating St. John's this week, Mike, they've had a tough go recently. They've lost three of the five last games against Creighton, Villanova, and Xavier. And in the last six games, they haven't really been offensive juggernauts either. They've been shooting 40% from the field, 30% from three-point, while surrendering 37% to their opponents. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you if you really start breaking down those seven wins, they have two against St. John's, two against uh, Butler, one against DePaul, and one against Georgetown. That's six games that you should win. That's what we say about Seton Hall, right? You got to beat the bottom dregs of the conference. So UConn's taking care of business. We've unfortunately lost two games in that bucket. So, I mean, I, I'm not that impressed by their overall eight and five. It doesn't have a lot of depth. You know, in those games that they lost recently, Creighton, Nova, Xavier, you know, the the teams that they have to step up their level of competition against, they haven't gotten the job done. 
So I, I kind of feel like they are a very similar matchup to us. Keep on saying that over and over again. And I also am going to go out and predict and say that the result we got in that overtime thriller where teams were just shooting the basketball with high efficiency and, and inside outside play, you name it. I don't think we're going to get that. I think we're going to get the opposite. I think we're going to get a rock fight up in stores or, and I'll challenge you here, Tom, is Seton Hall going to continue their recent stretch of solid three-point shooting over our last six games? I couldn't believe this when I looked it up. We are shooting, as you would put it, a crisp 40%. I think taking 40% would put us in the upper echelons of teams, so I'll take it, Michael. It, it would, but it, it's a smaller sample. Now, six games is growing, and maybe that's a little bit bigger than a small sample. Is this a newfound ability for this team or are the right guys just taking three pointers or at some point is this number going to regress? I, I think in general, I think the, sh- the number is going to regress. I think we've got basically two really strong shooters at this point, especially if Bryce Aiken doesn't make his way back and who knows what's going to happen with Bryce. So I don't know. I think it reverts to the norm. I think, you know, six is a nice sample size, but it, but you know what? It's not quite even a third of the season at that point. But later on in the week, Mike, coming to the rock, we've kind of got a revenge game up. DePaul Blue Demons are coming back after beating us earlier in the season in Chicago. Since they last beat us, they're two and five in Big East play, beating Xavier and Georgetown but they've lost to Providence in overtime and they've lost to Xavier and UConn by one and seven points respectively. Did you say that surprisingly? Like, are you surprised that they got the two wins or you're like, Oh my God, they should have done better. I'm surprised. What's your take with the poll right now? I'm surprised that they're playing this competitively. I mean, they are losing. Let's not, let's not take any, you know, Solace no, no, for the poll winning two, the poll winning two games is them not losing. That that's like head and shoulders winning for them <laughs> going to overtime at Providence. Our, that's a our win, good baby. Friend Dan Stack is overly optimistic. He said these are the games that these are the games that are going to help DePaul down the line, and they're going to start winning some of these. So, but they're going to have a hard time winning them without Javon Freeman Liberty, who seals out with an injury. But David Jones seems to be stepping up, Mike. That was the hero against Seton Hall. And he just had a triple-double against Georgetown, which I believe was the first triple-double in the poll history. See, I, I, would, I would have said that Jalen Terry was the hero against Seton Hall, putting a career-high 28. And that's kind of almost sparked him going forward with Liberty being out and him being the primary ball handler now in the backcourt. He scored in double figures five out of his last seven. And Brandon Johnson's also stepped it up in the last four. He's now averaging 12 and seven rebounds over that stretch. This is a team that if you don't bring your A game, and we've seen it on numerous occasions, they will find a way to make you pay. They're scrappy. They're competitive. Yeah, they're going to have stretches where they play some ugly basketball. But I'm sorry, Tom, if, if we bring the same effort in the first half like we did out at Wintrust, then guess what? The Seton Hall fans that are expecting that to be a win know that they can't afford another slip up to the Paul. They're going to see a team that gets punched in the mouth again if they're not prepared. This should be a game that once again, we expect Seton Hall to take care of business, run them out of the building, comfortably win by double digits, 
but nothing about this DePaul team is saying that they're going to let that happen easily. So take this team for granted and watch out. That's what I'm learning from looking at this resume over the last you know month or so. You know, you are correct. Jalen Terry did score 28 big points. David Jones did go for 24 and 8, so I'm not far off on it. But however, Mike. <laughs> Hang on. David Jones is averaging like 14 a game for the year. Jalen Terry was averaging six and he went for 28. Hey, Come on. Saying, that's a complete game from David Jones. But instead of asking you to put a prediction because you have a hard time with your weak spine, I'm going to give the prediction and then you could talk about it. Two and a week coming up, Mike. UConn is prime for the picking. I think they're overrated. They haven't shown that they can beat anybody good this year so far. We're taking it to them, and we're gonna take. We're gonna give a shellacking to DePaul when they come to the Rock. I don't know. I just I, I'm not good at these predictions. Every time that I think that they're gonna win two, they find a way to stub their toe. I said if they were gonna beat Xavier, they would find a way to carry that momentum into Villanova and sweep the week. I was close. I was close. You got you got your conservative one and one. I mean, this week feels like a one and one. If we're going to be realistic about the prediction, they they kind of need that UConn game, but it, it, so does UConn, right? Go go look at UConn's resume. Where are their big wins right now? They got to take care of business too. They got to bounce back after losing uh, the game at Xavier. I, I know they got the win against St. John's, but they, they need another marquee victory. So it's it's not going to be an easy one. And if they beat. UConn, would you be surprised if they had a letdown versus yes, the poll? I will, I'm going to have a surprise that they're having a letdown because regardless of what their record's been uh, this week, one and one, we played well in both games. Last week, we played well in a get well week. I think the good times keep coming here, Mike. I just don't know what's going to happen next week, Mike. Family is going to Mammoth for ski week. How are we going to record the podcast? Next I was going to say, how, how are you going to watch the game? You probably watch it on delay again. I mean, I, I'm just going to get my phone up, Mike. You know, there's technology. I can so then watch, watch the, it on then watch the game live. Be like, you're pretend the like you're one sh- that can't get the password right on your Direct TV on oh, your phone, geez. Mike. I Pre- can get on my YouTube TV, no problem. Pretend like you're at your daughter's basketball game cheering for a bucket when meanwhile you're kind of, you know, peeking off to the side watching the game. Come on. You are an old man before your time, Mike. I'm going to be sitting there on my couch on Wednesday watching Seton Hall beat up all over UConn. And then Saturday night, I'm going to be in Mammoth, in a cozy cabin with the fire roaring, with my headphones in and my phone in front of me, watching the Pirates beat up on the pole, all the while yelling, go Pirates. And my wife's going to be sitting there going, really? Really? Saturday night, we're going to be spending our night watching the pole? That's what I got to do? That's what's going to happen? Yeah, I'll be sending you the divorce papers to look over for me on Monday. Can I get a go big blue, Mike? Oh, and then and, and, and while I'm doing that, I'll be screaming go big blue. Yes, my apologies. <laughs> Thanks for joining another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your other favorite listening platforms. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at Pirates. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Gaharski, 
I'm Mike Desiree, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 